The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan, and it's my great honor to introduce our guest today, a wonderful woman, Lori Drescher. I met Lori six or seven years ago uh, when I was living and working in Rochester, New York. Lori is very well known and very well respected in the state of New York for both her passion and her advocacy work for people struggling with addiction and their families. Lori's background includes over 20 years in the private sector as a self-employed business consultant, leadership coach, and executive development trainer. In 2015, upon witnessing and living with her son's opioid addiction, Lori realized the lack of support for families and patients and transitioned her career to begin training and certifying recovery coaches. Lori is the founder of Recovery Coach University. She also has a private practice as a recovery coach, working with addicted individuals as well as family members. Lori is the recipient of multiple awards, including the 2015 Families Together in New York State Advocate of the Year Award, the 2019 Karen Foundation Unsung Hero Award recipient, and the recipient of the 2021 Friends of Jacasa Recovery Services Award. On February 6th, 2021, just four short months ago, Lori experienced every parent's worst nightmare. She received a call that her beloved son, John, lost his 15-year battle with opioids and died of a heroin overdose. John would have turned 31 last week on June 3rd. This episode is dedicated to Lori's son, Jonathan Edward Drescher. Lori, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you, Patricia, and thank you for that kind uh, dedication to Jonathan. That's that's really why I'm here today, to uh, try to shine some light in some areas that may be helpful to others. I appreciate and honor that. Uh, Lori, can you tell us about your son? What was John like? Mm. Mm. That's, that's a, how long do we have? <laughs> um, John was, um, he was just, he was really a wonderful human being. And I know all moms say that about their sons, but um, there have been a lot of folks who have shared a lot of stories with me since his passing that have really reinforced and also taught me some things about my son. Um, I've, I've known that he is somebody who loves music, became a self-taught, pretty accomplished music, uh, musician himself uh, on the guitar. And he has a tremendous sense of humor, uh, probably his greatest gift. Uh, people can't talk about Jonathan without talking about his humor. Oftentimes I would hear them say, he's somebody who lights up a room. 
when he walks into it and makes everybody feel comfortable. Um, he worked in, in the last year um, and off and on over the past few years in the addiction and recovery field, helping others, working as an assistant counselor, technician in, um, in recovery centers, treatment centers, really helping people like him to, to uh, maintain and sustain their recovery. And he loved, he loved that work. Um, he's also a very handsome man, if I might just oh, please. share oh. a picture. Oh, um, wow. That's right? a very handsome young man. Thank you. Um, and he had a very close relationship with me and with his sister, who's seven years older than him, and, and with his dad and with so many of my family members who, um, who are pretty devastated by this loss, and maybe especially my two sisters who were really like second mothers to him. I had the pleasure of meeting John last year, and I was really impressed. Every once in a while, you meet a young person who's philosophical in his outlook. He's a deep thinker, and he was really, really searching for the meaning of life. Uh, he was also uh, really cool. Uh, I mean, he was very, very interesting to talk to and very interested in, in everything around him. He, he was a real quality human. He had a lot of depth. Thank yeah, you this, so much this, for saying that. This was a, a, a massive loss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was, you know, he was really philosophical and he was really intelligent um, and I think we, you know, sometimes when we, you know, our loved ones develop a substance use disorder and we see certain behaviors over the years, we begin to not see these other sides of who they are. And, uh, and even through John's, uh, the, the worst points in his addiction, that we always saw that level of in intelligence, the level of interest in just learning, learning new things and philosophizing with people who were able to have that conversation with him. And not everybody was, um, but, uh, but he was, uh, he and I spent hours on the phone talking about things in depth and I learned so much from him. I think it's really hard when somebody's in his 20s struggling with a drug addiction, because the goal of the 20-year-old is to separate and individuate and figure out what kind of career they're going to have. And uh, chemical dependency, boy, it sure delays the process, right? Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's such a struggle. That's such an angsty period of life anyway, but to, to be uh, knocked by a, a very severe uh, drug addiction is is really it's it's such a heavy struggle. It's it's almost insurmountable. It is, and especially when it starts at such a young age. You know, for him, it was he was in high school, and um, and 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 he and a lot of his friends got you know caught into this whole uh, pill craze. You know, finding the opioids on the on the medicine in the medicine cabinets, they were just so readily available, and these kids were searching. You know, they were searching for something that um, that made them feel good, that made them feel whole. Um, and 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 it is at a time, you know, their brain is still developing. That executive functioning part of their brain is, you know, 
several years from being uh, developed in a way that they can really connect the dots between their behaviors and their and and the um, the consequences of those behaviors. And it's, you know, it really begins to rob them of these kind of what you would expect um, a normal 20-year-old to be experiencing. Um, I oftentimes think about, you know, when his friends were graduating from college, he was graduating from his second treatment center. And what a different life experience he began to lead at that point. It, it really derails them, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. There, I, I like the fact that you brought up the brain. Yeah. Adolescents and young adults, especially those with AD, ADHD, and I think John suffered from ADHD, yep. uh, thrill seekers, uh, not uh, thinking through consequences and yeah, just searching for something, something meaningful and something different, some new experience. And certainly yeah. in this culture, there's overprescribing and lots of pills in everybody's uh, medicine chest easy access during high school years. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the progression of his addiction, Lori, and any consequences uh, that he began to suffer. Well, um, like I said, his, his use of, I would say, medications, primarily Oxycontin, started when he was about, when he was about in, in 10th grade. And it progressively got... I would say more and more. I, I don't even want to say he, he eventually went to heroin, but that wasn't for several years. For a long time, when he discovered that he was actually dependent on those opioids, he was about 18, and, and when he tried to, to put them down, he realized that he couldn't. He couldn't without becoming vitally ill. And so it was just easier um, to, to just you know find some more pills to relieve that pain. And, and ultimately, that's what it became. It became a way to relieve the inevitable pain of not taking the pills. And, of course, you're 17 and 18 years old, and uh, at some point, those pills start to go away. And it was like a perfect storm because John was in high school at the same time that we were beginning to develop a lot of awareness around this, this growing opioid crisis. And there were some laws that were passed. And in fact, I was eventually part of um, pushing for these laws to be passed. But everything has consequences. So one of the great laws that was passed was about restricting the number of pills that were prescribed um, in America. We, we, did the we looked at the data. We found out, oh my gosh, as Americans, we are consuming 95% of the world's um, uh, Oxycontin. And we said, maybe we're over prescribing a little Un bit. So unbelievable. We, unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think we have more illnesses here than the rest of the world, probably nope. just the opposite. Um, and, and so it became more and more difficult as those pills began to dry up. And a consequence of that and those laws that were passed was that many of those kids who became dependent on opioids became dependent on heroin. And I remember talking to John about this because the first time, it was 2012, I'll never forget it, the first time he showed me the track marks in his arm uh -huh. and I I thought I was going to fall off. We were sitting at, at my kitchen counter. I'll, I'll never forget it. 
And I just said, how did this happen? How could this have progressed? I knew that he had used pills in high school. And I'll, I'll tell you about that and why I knew that in a second. But, um, you know, he said to me, he said, Mom, we were using pills that we found on our parents' and our grandparents' medicine cabinets. Right. We figured they were made in a lab and they had to be safe. He's a casualty of the overprescribing epidemic in this country. No question. Yeah. about it. So even though his didn't start because he had a broken leg or, or some other illness where it was prescribed to him, um, it was no less no less connected to the overprescribing of opioids and the, and the manufacturers of those opioids, um, very clever marketing techniques to yes. dupe the entire American population, as well as the entire medical community. And I've Our kids to... are the fallout. And you're right. And I've talked to so many young people who say, I had no idea I'd go into withdrawal. I ran out of pills and all of a sudden I got sick. I thought I had the flu, but it wouldn't go away. And it's horrific opiate withdrawal. He had no choice but to switch to heroin. He really didn't. And and so, you know, you, you can't find heroin in your parents' medical cabinets. Right. Most, most kids can't. Yep. And so where do you go? You go to the street. And, and that's really when his life changed most significantly. But one of the first consequences he experienced as a result of using the pills was um, he started stealing. And he, I'll never forget, he was at a party, high school, it was right after high school graduation, he was 18. And he, he was at a party where the parents weren't home and he and a couple of his friends who were also using opioids um, at the time, decided it would be a good idea to uh, to steal the jewelry of the person who owned the home. And he was uh, arrested. You know, he was caught and he was arrested for that. And and that's when we began to see how serious this was. That's when, that's the first time I saw, I found the bottle of the Oxycontin uh, that they had been consuming at that party. This This was a nightmare. And he was how old when he was arrested? He was 18. 18 years old. So by the time of 18, we've got track marks and we've got the first arrest. We've got the first arrest. The track marks actually happened a little bit later, um, around 2012. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he was he was 20, 21 or 22 when, okay. um, and, and I'm sure it, it started earlier than that. That's when he and I had the heart to heart and he was able to share that with me. And what's the parent's reaction upon seeing uh, track marks in their child's arm and knowing that it's heroin they're shooting it? Well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrific. <clears throat> um, I had seen a progression in him over a period of several months where he just his, his physic, physicality changed. I noticed that he's, he was wearing the same clothes sometimes two or three days in a row. I could tell that his hygiene had slipped a bit. And, and John was always somebody who cared deeply about, about, about that. He cared deeply about how he looked and what he wore. He, was a, he loved clothes. And, and I noticed that these things that at one time were really important to him stopped being important to him. And, uh, and that's, you know, finally when, you know, I said, John, we need to talk because I'm, I'm really worried that there's something, you know, going on here. And he just, he just, you know, rolled up his sleeve and held out his arm. And um, okay, so your heart just stops. Yeah. It's really terrifying. And what did you do? What was the first treatment that you attempted? 
Well, the first thing we did is we took him to an outpatient clinic that um, that we knew about here in the Rochester area, a wonderful a wonderful place, and had him evaluated. Um, and actually, let me back up. He was actually evaluated a couple of years earlier for his marijuana use. We were really concerned. We knew he was using a lot of marijuana. Right. And so he agreed. He kind of went through, you know, the steps and 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 was evaluated and, um, you know, convinced us that they were wrong and he was right, um, that he didn't really have a problem, even though they said he did. You know, they did. They, they said that he did have a problem even with marijuana. Um, so that was kind of his first experience because he did agree to go to some group sessions, not a lot. Mm-hmm. When the track marks happened, um, and he, he actually said to me, he said, I'm just, I'm sick and tired of feeling this way, of being this way, of the lying, of the stealing. So we went back there, and then they actually worked with us to try to find an inpatient clinic for him um, in in upstate New York, where he went, and that was in 2012, where he went for 30 days treatment. And we thought he was cured. Yep, yep, 30 days, right? That was the right. traditional traditional model, the abstinence model, right? right. It works exactly. for alcohol uh, and cocaine and marijuana. Right, and there was no what we do after this. You know, it was just, okay, good luck, John. You got your son good back. Luck. And right. I remember them saying, John, if anybody can make it, you can. You're um, going to do great. And they they said nothing to us about how to continue to support him. There was no family education. There was no, um, uh, here, here's a list of resources or supports that you might want to think about because this recovery thing may not be nipped after 30 days. There you was were, none of you that. were dropped and left on your own. Yes, exactly. As though you can uh, fix a brain disease, especially an opiate addiction in, in 30 days and what about the healing for the family members, right? Nothing. Right. And nothing. Boy, and, and this is a young person, so not very caring, not much forethought there. No, and I think, you know, I think John also thought, you know, he had never been through this before. So I think right. he thought, oh, you know what? I'm good. And he even told me that later. He said, I, become, I became complacent. And I thought I had this. And then uh-huh. I thought, oh, I I can have a few beers. What's what is that going to do? Well, for some people, probably nothing. But for him, it led him right back to the drugs that made him feel whole. Of course, and the, the what a setup, Lori! Uh, a setup for him to feel like a failure to give him thirty days and no no medication and release him with no aftercare program, and then he feels like a failure when he relapses. Yeah. And I mean, because we were also, I mean, we went and had a birthday party after that. We were like, yay, let's celebrate. And, uh, and, and, and so I'm sure he felt so much shame when this was happening to him that he couldn't yeah. share it with us. You know, we thought we were done with this. Right. And this, this costs money too. So the, the person feels guilty that the parents have spent all this money and he feels like a failure. What's wrong with me? I can't get clean and I can't get uh, into recovery after just one month of treatment. Yeah, there's something wrong with me. And it was a real setup because, yeah, abstinence doesn't work with heroin addiction. Uh, we're, we sure know that now, don't we? Yeah, we know um, that and, now. And again, for, for some folks, it probably does. But, um, but 
as we look at the data, that the, the problem is, and you know, I'm, I, I train this stuff now, but the problem is that we've been telling so many stories and so much of the stories that we tell are based on a very small population of people that we know or experience. So it may be those people that we know who have gone to treatment, who have gone to intense inpatient treatment, um, or are members of AA or NA, and, and they're and they're there every day, every week. And so, and I'm not, I don't put those groups down. They were a really important part of my son's recovery. Mm-hmm. But the the story that we all hear and begin to truly believe is that this this pathway of addiction is the same for everybody. And so this is the protocol that you need. You need abstinence only. You need to surround yourself in mutual aid groups by other people who are abstinent and, and and don't be talking about any other supports like medications because we don't consider that abstinent. And you're not really welcome here unless you're abstinent. And that message is a really, really dangerous one and causes folks who are in there and who are contemplating using some supports to help them stay off of the opioids, it causes them to um, become, to feel very shamed and to keep secrets, even from this community uh, that, that they're, they become so close to. I had a patient who told me he was on buprenorphine. I was prescribing it and he went to his home group, NA group, and the home group said, you can't chair a meeting if you're on buprenorphine, even though we've got two decades of randomized control studies showing that buprenorphine and methadone are the first-line treatment best practice for opioid use disorder. It's, it's not medication-assisted treatment. These are medications for right. opioid use disorder. This is not just an adjunct. It is the treatment. And uh, yeah, I agree. I love the 12-step community too, and some are more enlightened than others, but there are some old-timers who are still ascribing to the uh, abstinence model, as well as treatment centers across the country, treatment centers that I send alcoholics to, but I won't send uh, someone addicted to uh, heroin because Mm -hmm. they won't use the opioid agonist treatments like buprenorphine and methadone. Right. Right. And so, you know, I I get really curious about our treatment system and our treatment protocols and that we're still using treatment protocols that we've been using for how many years? Mm -hmm. And 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 that and that thinking just continues to um, it becomes systemic. and, And until we disrupt the thinking and until we can embrace some of the new thinking based on the evidence that we have, uh, we're going to continue applying this one-size-fits-all treatment protocol as well as the stories about what what works, what doesn't work, and and what it's going to take for you to be accepted into this community. It it, typically over 85% of people will fail if they try to go the abstinent route and have opioid use disorder. So think about that statistic. That, right. That statistic should be all we need to say. Yes. All we need to know. Right. Especially with all the fentanyl that's out there, right? Do you want to risk abstinence and risk a relapse? Whereas if someone takes buprenorphine or methadone, you've got a 50% decreased risk of relapse and a decreased risk of overdose death. These are dangerous times, right? They sure are. 
They sure are. And fentanyl changed the game. I mean, people right. were overdosing on heroin, but uh, fentanyl is poisoning and killing so many, you know, and, and we don't always talk about this, but, you know, because we like to think that our numbers are going down, but they're not going down. No. Uh, they're going up. And COVID, of course, made this even worse because people were isolating. They weren't able to get the supports that they were used to. Right. And, and so we see overdose, overdose deaths going up. And that's largely because um, the, how unsafe the drugs are on the street. And that sounds like a crazy thing to say, like, well, duh, all drugs are unsafe. That's not really true. You know, there are degrees of safety. And we need to be able to start having this conversation. Because safety is what matters. And while we are trying to help somebody stay, stay alive, we need to begin embracing some of the standards around how do we keep people safe. Right. That should be the number one goal. Keep them alive. Keep them alive. Right. Yeah. And you told me in a private conversation last week that you learned something that changed your attitude toward your son's addiction when he was in a treatment center, I guess another treatment center down the road. I think it was a film that you saw. Oh boy, help me out here. Give me a hint. Oh, uh, no, give me a hint. I think it was at a treatment center in Pennsylvania where he was there for 28 days. And I believe you saw a film on the brain images mm. of yes. people struggling with uh, drug addiction. Can I mention the name of the treatment center? Or should Absolutely, I because I, okay. I endorse that one, and I know you do okay. too. <laughs> so that's Karen, uh, Karen in in Pennsylvania, and that is the uh, Doug, the CEO of Karen, who now this is the CEO of a very large organization, right? But he takes it upon himself. I don't know if he still does, but he did then to come in to a five day training, you know, a parent program, and to immerse parents in understanding what happens to the brain with addiction. And, you know, I consider myself pretty intelligent. And I have, you know, I've been with my son on this path for a number of years before he went to Karen. That educational one hour program changed everything for me. All the lights went on. I began to realize that this judgment that I held towards my son, this belief that this was only by choice, right. uh, why couldn't why why couldn't he just put it down? He's so smart. Where did I fail? All those messages that we tell ourselves yes. as parents uh, began to just sift away, and I began to realize that there was something that was happening in his brain. That this was indeed a brain disease, and it wasn't willpower, and it wasn't intelligence, and he and it, he wasn't bad. So you separated the person from the drug addiction. Have to. We have to. Wonderful. Now, what I don't say is I don't, I hear people sometimes say, well, the brain is hijacked and therefore the person no longer has any choice. And so we need to treat them like we would treat a child and we need to, you know, give to them, do to them. And um, I, I, completely disagree with that. I believe that that is probably one of the most disempowering ways of thinking um, that anybody in the field and including family members can, can, can adopt. So what we have, you know, even when somebody is really, really sick with addiction, they can still choose recovery. They can still choose to work with somebody or to use a medication that will help them um, to, to, either either reduce their need for those 
drugs uh, or, or even get them off of them or, 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 or provide some other form of harm reduction where maybe they do something that is more safe, but they're off of the, the killers, those killer drugs. So I, I, don't, I don't think that way anymore. So I'm wondering, Lori, if you could tell us what, what you think parents need Parents of, if they've got a child struggling with a drug addiction, what makes it hard? So what what makes it hard is that, you know, sometimes right before your eyes, you see your child change and you begin to grieve the loss of your child, you know, long, long before they may actually pass away from, from addiction. You begin to grieve the loss of their soul, the loss of their personality, the loss of who they were, the loss of the aspirations that you had for them. And um, that that's a huge loss. And, and parents suffer. Um, I saw data one time that said that parents of kids with addiction use a disproportionate amount of healthcare resources. And I believe that. I believe that just based on data on, on my own, a, a sample of one yep. in the past um, seven years, I've had five surgeries. Um, I've had cancer. I've had to have heart surgery. I've had endocarditis and osteomyelitis and big, big illnesses. And I was a very, very healthy person, worked out, ate well, took care of myself. This is what the stress does to parents. Uh, and I believe we underestimate it. We don't have nearly enough services to support parents and and really show parents how they can both be a loving parent and take care of themselves through this. And you've said something interesting to me in the past. You've said that you disagree with Al-Anon's statement, uh, detach with love. And I wonder if you'd be willing to share something about that. I'm not going to make a lot of friends today. <laughs> well, I'm your friend. <laughs> I, I, you you have plenty of friends. I know who your friends are. We're we're loyal to the to the very end, and and wow. I know that you support Al-Anon, and so do I. But it's the one statement, and maybe it's not Al-Anon that said it. Maybe it's uh, something you know from Melody Beattie, who I also like. But I do this too. this one concept you have a problem with detach with love. So we won't blame Alan on or Naranon or Melody Beattie because we like all of them, but we do. Yes, we do. And it's not even the statement. It's the interpretation. It's the way people in the, some of those rooms. And I would say probably, I hate to say it, Naranon more than Alan on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the way that message has been, terp- has been interpreted and then painted onto parents and hand in hand with that statement is essentially, even if they weren't, if, even if these aren't the words, uh, kick your kid to the curb. I've heard uh, it. Tough, kick, tough love, kick, tough love. Yeah. Kick yeah. him out. Kick him out. Attach with love. And, and, and so to me, that's an oxymoron anyway. I don't know how to detach with love. I don't even know what that means. Right. Um, I know that I've had to learn to attach differently um, then I attach to my daughter that doesn't have a substance use disorder. There are some things that I've had to do to protect myself in this and also ways of par- learn to partner with my son, just as we would with any child who has either a chronic disease or a serious um, you know, condition. We learn to partner with them. We learn to be on their side. We may not always agree with their choices, 
but we learn to be on their side. That's a very different message than detach or just, you know, lock, lock up the house. And I'm not saying that some parents don't need to do that right. because I know they do. Yeah, but, but I understand but, what you're saying. I like what you're saying. The message detached with love, sometimes people misinterpret it and say it's a total cutoff. I'm going to cut myself off from this yeah. relationship. And you're saying, no, I just need to attach differently and learn how to talk to him in a way that opens doors and invites conversation so that someday if I get curious as to how this is for him and how he's really doing, someday you can say, uh, hey, John, would you like to hear my thoughts on this? And maybe he yes. will say, yes, mom, and invite you in. As opposed to the way most of us parents, including me, and yes. on, on even after becoming inspired and enlightened, you know, we fall back because this is our go-to. Our go-to is we want to fix. Right. We want to solve. We want to save. And so if our child comes to us and either we're observing something physically that tells us he's not doing well or, or maybe they even take the risk and they're honest with us, we want to fix it. So we... Right. Start off by telling them what they should just do. Of if you just did this, you know, if you right. just tried this, right. what about all those persons, places, and things? You know, you need to just stay away from them, and you need to get a sponsor, right. and you need to right. – all of these things that you should do. And, you know, you're, you're a psychiatrist, so I'm sure yeah. you've heard of the, the theory of psychological reaction, which is if somebody tells me what I should do, yeah, I'm going to go brain, the other direction. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And right. and so it it doesn't work. So what 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 we need to do and and what I've sort of dedicated the first portion of my recovery career to is teaching parents how to um, how to how to have this conversation differently, how to suspend that what we call in motivational interviewing writing reflex, you know, that reflex to fix and solve and and instead just listen, oh, validate, how reflect. hard, how hard it's. It's so hard, but what's amazing is the feedback when you ch when you change your when you change the way you communicate and you start doing that, the feedback that you get immediately is your child stays more engaged. They stay with you in the conversation versus You're finding right. every way they can to get out of it. And then they're not alone. And they're not alone, and they say, and they leave that thing saying something was different. What was different about that? You know, my mom actually listened to me and didn't you know, didn't try to tell me what to do or try to fix me or start crying and doing all of those things that don't really work. All they do is make me feel worse about myself. So this is not enmeshment and it's not a total cutoff. It is separate, but connected. It's so cool that you should say that because one of the diagrams in my treating, in my tra training are these or what are the circles called that connect? Is that, oh, is that a Venn? Venn diagram. Venn, yes. Yeah. Remember that from, oh, you know? Yeah. Okay. So if you, if you think about the so, so if you've got you and your child like this, that's, that's separate. It's too separate, you know? And if you've got them over completely overlapping, that's you're way over functioning. You're way over enmeshed in their, in their life. But when you have this intersection here, 
Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can really learn where where does that relationship belong, and and what how can I make the most of that intersection? You can begin to find healthier ways of interacting and and really being a support rather than so what uh, does an that, adversary. What does that sound like, Lori? Like if uh, what's it sound like if if somebody's got a son with a heroin addiction and he's relapsing and he's stealing money or he's talking about you know I'm gonna I'm going to travel and I'm going to leave my job and uh, what, or if he calls and asks for money, like I, I wonder, I guess boundaries also are important. So say something about boundaries and why people set them because sometimes parents misinterpret what I'm saying and they think, oh, I have to set boundaries to manipulate him to do what I want him to do so that he will stay alive. But boundaries aren't about manipulating, are they? No, they're not. And and boundaries are not about creating a laundry list of conditions. Right. You know, that if you just meet all of my conditions, then I will accept you. Right. And and, and so the conversation starts with I accept you unconditionally. I mm. love you unconditionally. That's lovely. That that will never change. That's that very will never lovely. Change. You can always count on that. How often have you ever heard that in your life? That is not something that people say to each other very often. You know, I think I'm unusual in that my father used to say that to us. And I remember the first time I heard really? it because I still remember thinking, what does that mean? You know, what does unconditional mean? And I had to really spend some time understanding it. And and then as a parent, of course, I, I figured it out. And, and What a you know, lovely most, thing to say. Most parents do love their kids unconditionally, right. but right. somehow when they have this condition of yes. substance use disorder, we begin putting conditions on, right. on that love and that, and on that acceptance. So I would love if you want, you know, you said, what does that sound like? Um, yeah. Will you play with me? Do you want to do I'll role a, play? I love role. Oh playing. my gosh. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, All right. Yeah, so yeah. you be the person that the young person with substance use disorder, and we'll just have like a less than two minute conversation. And mm -hmm. I will try to model the kind of the listening, the reflective listening, staying out of judgment and not telling you what to do. So were you in my room again? Did you go through my stuff today? Were you looking through my phone? You can't go through my phone, mom. You can't look through my stuff. What's, what is wrong with you? You need a life. Back off. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. You'd like me to back off and not be as involved and looking at stuff in your room. And um, I want to start by just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because I didn't know. I didn't know what my role was supposed to be, um, but I'm learning. I'm taking some trainings and I'm beginning to learn what, what, what might be most effective. And it's not effective for you to feel like your privacy is being invaded at home. And I'm sorry. It's, it's not a bad problem, mom. I mean, I was just taking OxyContin. Everybody takes it. They're party drugs. Yeah, I'm not a drug addict, mom. I can stop anytime I want to. And half of the stuff that you find, it's not all mine. I'm just carrying it for Eddie. So, yeah. I, you know, really, I mean, you don't have to worry about me. You need to give me some space. And, uh, you know, I'll get my own lawyer. You don't have to pay for my lawyer. If, the, if there's conditions here, I'll get my own lawyer. Just back off. Yeah, I can tell you're feeling pretty angry with the way I have responded um, 
to you and some of the things that uh, I've seen. And again, I'm I'm sorry for my contribution to that. And and um, I don't need to go to treatment. I've been to treatment. And these groups, these groups are full of drug addicts. You want me to meet more drug addicts and the counselors? I know more than the counselors, mom. I've been to treatment centers before and I, I, I could run these groups. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sound like a place where uh, where you would want to go, where you would feel comfortable going, and and in fact, it, it sounds maybe like it's even pretty scary. Yeah, it's well, you know, I'm not scared, but I'm I'm not going to get anything out of it. I just, but I've I've just uh, I just I have too much stress, and I just need I just need everything to be less stressful. All right, I've I've just dealing with a lot here. I just have so many so many so much stress going on. I just need some peace in my life and I'll figure this out. You sound really overwhelmed right now with everything that is causing a great deal of stress for you. Damn straight. I'm overwhelmed. You know, um, uh, I just got broken up with, uh, and I've got, uh, you know, a shitty science teacher. I'm probably going to fail, uh, this, my stupid science class. Uh, it's not my fault. The guy's a real jerk. And, you know, I mean, I just, I don't have a car. You won't let me use the car. You took the car away. So I can't go anywhere. Like my life is hell, mom. My life is hell. It feels really bad right now being where you are. And it feels really bad that we've put some restrictions on you. Um, even though, you know, we've done that to, to try to keep you safe. So what, I, what I'd love to know from you is how Dad and I can be most helpful for you in trying to get your life back on track to a place where you feel better about you. I know you're somebody who wants to do really well in school. I know it bothers you that you're not doing well. And we would really like to be on your side and be supportive of you in this process. I think I just uh, need a break. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I just, I think I need to uh, get away and clear my head. Like, I've been thinking about going, um, going up to Alaska for the summer uh, because I think then I think I could clear my head and I could, I could get. I don't know. I'd be outside and I think I'd be healthy. Wow. Um, you know, I have a I have a friend of mine who did uh, some kind of Knowles program last summer, mm-hmm. and they really liked it. I just I, I want to get out of here. Um, I think I've got uh, yeah. I just I, I need to uh, be outside. I need to do something athletic. I need to. I used to be athletic. This is. I don't want to be. I don't want to. I don't want you guys to worry. I don't want to worry you guys. But I don't. I don't. I don't know. I can't see a way out. How scary to feel like you can't see a way out right now. And yet you've just described a potential experience that sounds amazing. And, you know, nobody knows you better than you do. The the fact that going to Alaska sounds like something that would help you to clear your head and connect with others um, who are, you know, who, who may have also, you know, dealt with some of the things that you're dealing with. It sounds like you know, you've given some thought to this and, you know, I, I want to just support you. And this is a healthy choice. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a high school dropout. I, I'm going to go to college. This, this, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to 
die. This is not who I am. No, it's not. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, I, I don't think of you in that way either. And those labels aren't helpful. And I'm really sorry if you've heard those labels from others. You will never hear them from me. Well, good. I appreciate it. I, I thank you. Okay, so what what did you notice that or you know that that may have felt different in that conversation than say the ones that you hear about from the parents that you know? So it's it's really funny because I am feeling sad right now. And I think you invited me in. And I think that what happens with drug addiction so often is that the person is so isolated and so disconnected from themselves and so disconnected from other people and everybody's yelling at them and uh, you know, they're getting arrested and they're getting uh, you know, stigmatized and shamed and nobody's listening to them. But when I felt listened to, then it got, it allowed me to feel, I guess all the loneliness that I was feeling and all the fear that I was feeling and all the self-doubt that I was feeling, I could drop my defenses. You weren't trying to manipulate me. Uh, you weren't playing with me. You weren't trying to uh, punish me. So I could actually feel the connection happening. And it really touched a place of uh, sadness and loneliness that I think these young people suffer. They feel like bad people. And they're so ashamed of being arrested and dropping out of high school and dropping out of college. And they're ashamed that they can't make their parents proud, but they don't want to be yelled at because it just stirs up all their own shame. They feel bad enough about themselves. So that was lovely. That was lovely. It's hard to do when you're a parent, I would imagine, because of the fear in your gut, right? That time's running out. How can I keep this person alive? But I think if we operate from a place of, you know, I love this person. I'm going to love them unconditionally. Um, and I'm going to be with them today. And if they talk to me, then someday they'll, you can, you can say, well, can I share my thoughts of what I think might be helpful? Exactly. But you have to earn the right to have that kind of a conversation. And yes. as long as we're shooting them, and yeah. as long as we're always operating from this, this gut fear level, um, it's going to cause us to say and do things that don't allow us to earn that opportunity to have that kind of real conversation with our kids. And, you know, uh, the fact that you felt it, and this was a role play, mm-hmm. to me says, talks about the, the power of adapting a communication approach that is a non-judgmental. Right. That's the hardest thing to do is to reserve judgment, yeah. uh, especially with our kids. I know. And, and that is also more listening than talking. You know, it's, and so I, the best tool in the toolkit for parents is the invisible duct tape. You know, know when oh. <laughs> you've said enough, like stop talking. I love you know, that. <laughs> listen more, talk less. Imagine just do this. Man, um, oh man. How often do you have parents in your office and you just want to duct tape them with real duct right. tape? It's like, oh, my God. And, and so, you know, and we can't do justice to it in this short time, but there are so many things that parents can learn. One of the things that the parents that I have worked with have found most helpful, most useful is this concept of the hula hoop. Mm. 
which is, you know, imagine putting a hula hoop over your head and, and now it's around you and we talk about what we can control and what we can't. Everything that we can control is within our hula hoop. Oh, I like that. Every, Everything else is outside, including our kids. Including now, our kids. Our, our, we, there is a lot, though, that is within our hula hoop, including how we decide to bring ourselves to the relationship. Right. And if we're willing to put our ego aside, yeah. you know, put our need to be right aside, a, and really, really, truly want to connect with our kids, we can do that. We don't have to, you know, establish this laundry list of, of con- conditions. We, we may need to establish some things that says, you know what, if, especially if it's an adult child and they want to live at home, okay, yeah. our adult children shouldn't be living at home, right. um, you know, after a certain point. So, okay, I expect that within the next three or four months that you're going to have a job. You're going to have a job. And and if not, then we're going to begin um, asking for rent of mm-hmm. X dollars a month. Yes. I, I expect that by January, you will be paying for your own car insurance. You will be doing some of the chores, et cetera. So it's not that these boundaries shouldn't be established. It's that parents need help and support in learning how to do it in a way that doesn't alienate their kids. Totally. So if I'm, I need to be comfortable with uh, how I'm feeling in my house and how I'm feeling in the relationship with my child. So if it's a rule that I don't pay for uh, him to live for free in my house and he's an adult, then I ask him for rent. Or if I have a rule he can't use in my house, he can't smoke weed in my house or he can't drink in my house, that's, that's, I'm not trying to manipulate him. In order for me to have a connection with him that feels good, then I need to set that for myself to be peaceful, but not to manipulate him. Right. And we and we can do that. We can do it really effectively without all of the angst if we begin changing our communication. That's where it starts. It starts totally. earning their their trust in looking at us and seeing us as a valued partner. And oftentimes, the family members, especially the parents, are the ones that maintain the connection where in some cases, not mine, sadly, sorry, but in some cases it is that connection that allows them to find their way out of that dark hole. It's by knowing that person unconditionally loves and supports me. that's, That's the hope. And you said something to me, Lori, last weekend that really touched me and stayed with me. I asked you if you had any regrets, and you said no. Can you say something about that? Because I actually think your relationship with your son is, and I'm going to say is, I'm not going to say was, because I think it's ongoing, is mm-hmm. so exquisitely beautiful. And and you said, no, I have no regrets. Um, I think what we were talking about is that as, you know, as mom to an adult child with substance use disorder, we find ourselves going down some holes that we would have never, ever anticipated. Right. Um, I, at, at one point in my son's journey, I became a safe partner to him. When he used heroin, he would call me, let me know he was going to use it, and then I would call him if I didn't hear from him within 10 minutes. I would always know his location. I always carry Narcan. And I hope everybody watching this does. Keep it in your car. 
keep it in your home. Absolutely. Um, so that I could be there to save his life if he overdosed on fentanyl, which there was a very good chance that he would. And we did that while we were searching out the right next place for him to go to get support. And uh, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, but but it allowed me to be that partner where I don't know who else would have done that for him at that time. And it allowed him to stay alive long enough to get to the next step in his recovery journey. So when I say I have no regrets, um, I'm not saying that I don't wish things had been different. You know, in some ways, I I certainly wish they had, you know, turned out differently. But I believe many of the things that we're talking about here today allowed my son to be with us for a much longer period of time than maybe he would have had we made different decisions and different, you know, different choices. You, you told me that you knew for years that he was living on borrowed time because of the culture, because of the fentanyl epidemic, this third wave that we've seen since 2013. And you said, I just decided I was going to enjoy him. And what a beautiful trust, uh, such a trust relationship between the two of you. Now, I, I don't want you to leave. We've got uh, about three more minutes without saying something about your magnificent Recovery Coach University oh. and and what it offers. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in 2016, I founded Recovery Coach University um, with the idea of coaching people to become certified as peer advocates and recovery coaches. Uh, when I began seeing the, 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 the great results uh, that were happening when people who were peers were helping other people who were suffering. And to this date, I have trained uh, with my training partners over 2,000 people to become certified who are out there now working to help support people in recovery. Over uh, 2,000 from all over over the world. So now it started out in, in just in Rochester, but, you know, COVID actually introduced some opportunities. And now our workshops have gone national and international. So it's become a calling, um, and you know I, I just would continue to dedicate this work that I do, not only to my son, but to all of the sons and daughters who are out there who are struggling and and their families. And what does a recovery coach offer of of the family of someone and the individual struggling with a heroin addiction? There are people that specialize in working with families. We oftentimes call them family navigators. Cool. But the peer recovery person is somebody who is in recovery themselves most often. They're in recovery themselves. And they simply can connect to another person and say, I, I've walked in your shoes. I know a little bit about how you feel. How can I help you with your recovery today? And that's where it starts. You've actually trained three of my patients who are in recovery, good, solid recovery from opioid addiction, and they loved the training. There's, uh, I don't know, there's, they're, they feel very special and they feel like they've transformed their own addiction into some meaningful work. And they loved being trained by you and Keith Greer because you guys are just so loving and, and because everything you're doing with them, you're teaching them is all research supported. So it's it's all evidence-based practices, which I just absolutely love. I mean, you've got MAT trainings, you know, the, the medications for opioid use disorder, and you show the research behind it. And um, yes. so yes. parents, if, if people say parents want support, where do they go, Lori? That's a really good 
question because there aren't a lot of great places. Here in the Rochester area, we have some places connected to Liberty Resources. Uh, there's a, a mom's group connected to Rock Covery Fitness. Okay. Um, and, and then there are also, you you actually shared some resources with me. Maybe we can share them in some sure. way. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would love to see us do that because we, we need to know more about these Resources. So Hazel Dunn Betty Ford offers a free Zoom one-day family workshop in English and Spanish to talk about boundaries, communication, the disease model, and then druginfo.org offers free Zoom parent coaching and individual coaching. Now, we've had to come to a stop, but I always love my time with you. Um, I so appreciate you coming. I, I just, I really think you're just a an awesome human being. And I can feel John's presence today. And I am so glad that uh, you had a chance to come on and talk about him. He was truly a beautiful human spirit. And uh, you're a uh, impressive role model for all parents out there trying to figure out how to love their children with a horrible disease of addiction. So thank you, Lori. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Trish. So this is uh, Recovery, the Hero's Journey, and uh, I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. And if you want to check out Recovery Coach uh, University in Rochester, New York, or Lori Drescher, uh, you can find her online at recoverycoachuniversity.com. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.